When it comes to moving healthcare practices forward efficiently, we are a country of perpetual pilot projects. We seldom move proven projects into stable, funded programs, and we rarely transfer the outcomes of pilot projects across jurisdictions. This approach is not serving our healthcare system well. That statement is a paraphrase of a healthcare research study bemoaning the fact that while we do lots of pilots, we never actually seem to translate those with promising results into our normal operations. To anyone working in healthcare today, that statement won't sound surprising. But that research study was actually published in 2009, and the problem of death by pilot has ballooned since then. Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast that's all about the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Craig Lipset, a doctor who spent the better part of the last 13 years leading clinical innovations for Pfizer, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. I first became aware of Craig's work almost 10 years ago when he was one of very few drug company leaders who was openly exploring the use of social media in the context of clinical trials. Craig has continued to stay ahead of the curve in all kinds of ways, and today, as a newly independent consultant, he's working with a number of promising young healthcare technology companies to break the cycle of death by pilot. Craig, thanks so much for being with us on DataPoint today. Thanks for having me, Greg. So I mentioned in the introduction that you have been working for a long time to push the limits of innovation and drug development. Uh, One of the things that we like to do on this show is to understand a little bit about your life and your career and some of the milestones that led you to where you are today. Can you give us a little of that background? I probably have an an unconventional background. I I majored in music as an undergrad, but did study uh, medicine and public health later on. But I would say that the, the piece of my journey that probably most influenced where I've led my career has been my own experiences as a patient. And I'm very forthright and open about those experiences. I I, uh, I self-identify as a patient. Uh, I'm on the uh, board for the Foundation for the Rare Disease, which uh, which affects my life, mm-hmm. and hope to be able to use that as a way to improve the, the journeys of others. But that journey led me to appreciate the value of my own data uh, in a very personal and intimate way. I remember sitting in a coffee shop in Massachusetts with Dave DeBroncart, years ago, mm-hmm. the e-patient Dave. And I often joke that Dave diagnosed me as an e-patient. I didn't know what that jargon really was, but I knew that I felt my data and accessing it and using it was going to be the key for me to managing my own health and wellness across so many different providers. And I learned so much from Dave and from that whole movement that I felt compelled to bring that back into my work in life sciences and clinical research. Because all of my work during that time had been around bringing new approaches into clinical research, mm-hmm. but by really embracing my role as a as a patient, I, I aspired to bring that identity into my professional setting, into the meetings, into the platforms that I was looking at, um, and I think that that embrace uh, really was instrumental in in leading me to where I am today. You know, I uh, it's funny that you mentioned ePatient Dave. He actually has a, a podcast on my same network. So the Touchpoint Media Network is the host not only of DataPoint, but Power of the Patient with E. Dave DeBroncard. 
That's fabulous. Yeah. I, I will definitely go pull that up when we're when we're off the air. And I hope everybody who's listening continues to listen to this. But then when we're done, jumps over and checks out. Dave. Exactly. You patient Dave is uh he is a classic and one of a kind. Um I the the way that you describe that experience, Craig, is really interesting to me because um there's been more attention paid recently, although I would argue not enough yet to how patients actually experience clinical trials and clinical research. Um, And as somebody who has a very intimate relationship, as you say, with that patient experience, can you talk to us a little bit about how that informed the work that you did at Pfizer uh, in the clinical team there? You know, the I think the the life sciences, the the clinical research community has come an incredibly far distance, but in many ways we're really still nascent on this on this when I think about how as as recently as well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep talking about Dave. So ten years ago when I was at Pfizer, I was planning the uh, the remote study. This was going to be the first fully in-home uh, clinical trial of an investigational new medicine ever done mm-hmm. where patients didn't have to travel into sites. And um I invited Dave to come down to New York to sit with the team so that they could hear his perspective as as a leading e-patient. And and it, and it worked out really well, but I thought, well, look, I've got Dave traveling all the way down to New York. He's going to be at the corporate headquarters of the, one of the largest drug companies in the world. Clearly, there are other meetings I can schedule for Dave while he's on site. And I started to contact some other leaders around the company. And bear in mind, this is this is 10 years ago. Right. And the feedback I would get from folks back then was, what am I going to talk to him about? What am I going to talk to a patient about? And when I think about that journey from 10 years ago to today, that if I had Dave in-house now, I he'd be oversubscribed, right, with back-to-back meetings. And it really just embodies that mindset that that folks back then, it wasn't even a, a question of should we be talking to patients? It was a question of what would I even be talking to them about? And when I look at the journey today, how we've we've traveled um, one of the milestones that i was really excited about inside of pfizer during my time there was how our team was able to embed not just that we would talk to patients here and there when we're planning and designing our studies but we embedded so that every new protocol that was being written was going to be challenged what insight did you get from patients and how did it impact the design of your study and if you couldn't answer that you weren't going forward. And that meant scale, right? That meant now we actually had a way that we were going to do this, not just anecdotally on a study here or there, but on every new study that was going on. But that being said, you know, we're still we're still learning. There's so much growth that's still required here. How do we really map patient journeys with a type of discipline and rigor that even our own commercial organizations in pharma know how to do so well. Mm. What are the right strategies for engaging patients? Does it mean getting insights from communities or convening panels of patients or running surveys? Or how do you get that on a global scale for a multinational trial? There's still so much to learn. But it's it's been amazing to see just this journey getting started and the impact that comes from it. The idea that this isn't just a feel-good exercise, but that protocols change for the better when patients are involved in their design. Amendments can be avoided, costs spared, and unnecessary burden for patients avoided. 
Are there any examples that stand out for you in terms of uh, sort of aha moments that came from those, um, you know, c- collections of aggregated patient experiences that might wind up changing a protocol? You know, I had this one team, and I can't share the therapeutic area that they were working in, but they sure. sat down with a with a group of patients for multiple turns when they were designing their protocol well before it was finalized. Because, as you know, if if a protocol is already finished. Now, now the change that's required, it's, it's tough. So getting yeah. these teams to engage when they were still designing was key. And they had a design that clinically and scientifically was spot on. It made sense in terms of there being a dosing period, a washout period, and then another dosing period. But when they sat with patients in this particular disease area and heard from them firsthand the burden on their lives, what the experience would be like for an extended washout period of having to be off of medication with their condition, I don't think that study teams ever could have appreciated that just by reading emails or, you know, positive intentions with KOLs and in the in the clinical community. But by sitting with these patients and hearing their stories and talking to them firsthand, they came back with an with a revised protocol that addressed that concern. And there was a moment there that, you know, it's funny, we don't talk a lot about empathy in this clinical and scientific space. It's almost like, a, I don't want to say it's a dirty word, but I think people think it's a weak term. Like, of course, we're sure. empathetic. We love babies. How can, you, how can you have science and be empathetic? <laughs> right. But this moment when the patients looked at the study team and the study team looked back and there was this moment of really understanding each other. And it mm. was it was amazing to see that I remember some of the patient feedback coming in that they really didn't know what to expect. Was the study team really going to listen to them? Was anything going to change based on what they shared? And I think seeing that things can change um, was was really um, was really an amazing experience for folks and really something I was excited to see more of in my old company and now get to see folks across the industry be able to experience that for themselves at scale, not just with incremental one-offs in one Mm -hmm. study or another, but consistently across their portfolios. That is exciting. And I I have to believe that in addition to improving the patient experience, you know, in that particular example, you also prevented a lot of patients from dropping off and falling out of the study. You know, there's got to be a tremendous benefit for the organization in that as well. You know, it's it's funny. It's, It's hard sometimes to put a hard number in terms of the ROI on some of these initiatives. And I'm sure you experienced this in your past life as well, when we're trying something innovative and new, what's really going to be the ROI. And when we're drilling down into these areas of patient experience, what's that ROI? When I first started doing some of this work, there were, there were executives, even in my old company, that came back to me and said, you know, we have to see impact on measurements we care about, recruitment, mm-hmm. retention, protocol compliance, But I feel like we're at an interesting tipping point now where, yes, those are key measures. And obviously, the business cares about those. They're they're critical for the execution of our studies. But we're starting to see people turning a bit and saying, what about experience itself? And Mm. how should we be looking at that and quantifying that for its own merit, separate from just its downstream uh, consequence on recruitment, retention, and compliance? But shouldn't we also be measuring and concerned with the experience of our patients themselves? Interesting. And when you think about quantifying the experience, that sounds like a, a challenging thing to do. What are, what are some things that might wind up becoming a metric for quantifying patient experience? 
That's a great question. And, and we've seen really an evolution of thought here. I think that in the early days, being clinical scientists, we love to develop clinically sound, scientifically validated instruments. Absolutely. And so, you know, the first generation in this space, we were developing instruments to measure experience that had a miserable experience to them. They were very long and painful questionnaires. And people would come back and say, wow, I just went to Dunkin' Donuts and I've completed like a 30-second survey on my experience. And yet, you know, you guys want, you know, 100 questions answered on my experience. The irony is rich. <laughs> but I, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a, a lot of good learning in that space. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the folks at Transcelerate published um, some of their aggregated learnings around measuring experience, which is really cool. Transcelerate, for listeners that aren't familiar, is a nonprofit group of about 19, 20 different pharma companies around the world. I was part of helping to create it uh, and participated in their leadership for years. Um, and what they did in this space was come together across companies and share the different measurements that each was trying and see if they could make some recommendations there. But I can tell you that in addition to the um, the great work that some of the companies are doing, we're starting to see entrepreneurs and innovators developing solutions in this space as well. Um, I, I just joined the board for one company called Circuit Clinical, which has a, a pretty interesting solution in this space called Trial Scout, um, which, you know, not to just promote one solution here, but just to sort of round out this conversation, Trial Scout is based on a lot of the learnings of the leaders from Circuit Clinical who came from health grades, mm. who take a very consumer-oriented focus on how to measure patients' experience in a clinical setting and try to apply that same thinking to a research participant's experience in a research site setting. And so I think we're going to see a lot of these different solutions emerging, whether it's ones that have maybe a little more of a an industry scientific lean to it, mm -hmm. others that maybe bring a consumer lean to it. And we'll start to see how these different learnings actually get applied and used to drive change because that's that's what we all want, right? Is where in the process can any of these insights be fed back and affect change? Affect change in how we're choosing investigator sites for studies, affect change so that sites can know what they're doing right and wrong around experience, and affect change so that sponsors, when they're designing studies, can make sure that the studies are executable for both the researcher and for the patient. Fantastic. And that actually is a great time for us to take a quick break. Stick around. We are going to be right back with Craig Lipset on DataPoint. We are back on DataPoint. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Craig Lipset. Craig, as we were going into the break, you were talking about some of the many solutions that are being developed to better assess and incorporate the patient experience as a part of clinical research. And it led me to uh, to to want to go down a path with you. You've left Pfizer after almost 13 years there in leadership roles. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and the kinds of companies you're working with? Absolutely, Greg. You know, one of my favorite uh, dimensions of my work at Pfizer was keeping a foot inside the organization to understand the pain points that were contemporary and help introduce solutions and try to scale them up. But my other foot was always outside the organization, looking at what was new and emerging capabilities, both new and emerging in the life sciences, 
but also in adjacent areas. What might be exciting new solutions in healthcare or elsewhere that we could start to bring in and rethink some of our our work? And so, as 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 I was looking at my own professional journey and seeing how. Yeah, you know, I achieved a lot of the goals I had set out for myself inside of Pfizer. It made sense for me to start to move externally and see how I could work more directly with so many in that community that I've been connected with for so many years. Mm-hmm. And so most of my time now is spent with tech, with startup, with venture and others that are looking to make an impact on life sciences clinical research and how can we develop strategies for growth and in particular strategies to get beyond pilots. Okay, you hit on a trigger word there. Um, it's something that we've been, I think, hearing more about and certainly a lot of us in healthcare have been frustrated by the fact that, man, we run a successful pilot, but then where does it go after that? Um, tell us about some of your experience with pilots and how organizations think about them you know, why, why do we have such a hard time getting beyond the pilot and what do we do about it? You know, I, I have this analogy I, I've, I've started to share um, and hopefully it doesn't offend anyone. And if, 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 if it does, tweet me and I'll stop saying it. But um, I think about pilots the way I think about the birth of my kids and how you had nine months of really hard work and it ended it was pretty painful in the end. And then after all of that, you delivered you delivered a pilot, right? So, and, and when I look at the teams, they're really excited about that. It is a milestone and they should be proud. There was a lot of work and it was painful. It took a lot of blocking and tackling to get there. But the difference is when my wife was pregnant with our kids, we were planning to bring the kid home. We were planning for the next 18 years. We were baby proofing and we're thinking about life insurance and we're thinking about college savings and all these other dimensions. When I think about our teams that are running the pilots, they're not really thinking about bringing the baby home. They're not really thinking about the really hard work because when that pilot is done, just like your kid being born, that's day zero. And now the hard work starts. That hard work that starts, it's not sexy, it's grunt work. But without it, if we can't take the solutions that worked in a pilot and embed them and scale them in our organizations, it's all for naught. I use this definition in my organization of people would often ask me, well, what's innovation? And I I used this definition, and I really should look up where I got it, uh, an idea from which you derive value. Right. So it's not the idea on its own that sort of lets you claim innovation. It's if you can derive value from it. And in a life sciences drug development organization, it's all about scale. If you can't take that idea and run it across multiple studies in a meaningful way, you're not going to get value out of it. And so the really, to me, the secret sauce for innovation in this drug development space is the ability not to find the coolest, sexiest new thing, because we're all looking at the same cool and sexy things. It's the ability to take it and get it to scale in your organization. Let's unpack that a little bit, because I think you hit on something really incredibly important here and really pervasive, uh, certainly in healthcare, but I think I think broadly in industry as well. What are some of the things that in your mind, you know, what is some of that hard work that you do? You know, what what are some of those things that you can do, uh, you know, planning before the pilot that are going to help you enable the scaling after a successful pilot? 
It's a great question. You know, I think there are a number of different models that I see different organizations, large organizations, pharma and others, that are, are trying when it comes to this pilot stage. Um, for some, they try to um, embed some competency in their operations group, in the business. And for mm-hmm. some, they try to run it as something adjacent. And one of the um, one of the kind of buzzy things right now are to have chief digital officer lines in pharma where where maybe these digital pilots can live so they can be protected and ring-fenced and, and kind of thrive. But ultimately, if that pilot doesn't have a business owner, if you don't have some roadmap for the type of change in terms of internal policies, procedures, training, mm-hmm. SOPs, you might have thought you, you you got your pilot going quickly by finding end runs around the lawyers and the regulatory groups, but you're going to need them sooner or later. And so it's really just a question of, am I putting off the inevitable by trying to end run through a sort of adjacent uh, group, or how much of it am I going to embed in the process just to get the pilot up and running, in which case it's going to be a long and painful road for every pilot. And I think every organization has to find that right balance. But what they can't do is put their heads in the sand and pretend like it's not going to come up sooner or later. Right. This is a business process, right? It's not a mystery. There's a change curve to this, and it's hard. But if you don't have that mapped out in terms of the communications, the change management around these, Mm. um, it goes nowhere. It is pretty amazing when you think about it that it's so tempting. I understand the instinct because it's so tempting to think, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could just get this up and running in one week instead of eight weeks uh, by, you know, as you say, shortcutting some of these processes. And that's great if your goal is to run a pilot. But if your goal is actually to implement change in the organization, you're really uh, sort of cutting your legs off before you start the race. Isn't it the truth? I used to joke, we're not an airline. We're not just here to have a bunch of pilots running everywhere. We, we actually have a job to do, and it's uh, it's get these medicines developed and embed these new approaches within. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've got – I think one of our biggest challenges in this medicine development space is, you know, we um, – there's there's time that's needed to develop these medicine development plans and these strategies for how we're going to develop the medicine. And there's a there's a point at which change that people may want to introduce, you know, even if it's a positive change, it's just going to slow things down. Mm. And there's a, a level of, of tolerance for that, that there's so many great new opportunities, a new endpoint that can really be much more meaningful, but that people can't embrace because it wasn't embedded in their strategies early enough. Um, and and that, that ends up locking a lot of things out. I think the other thing that locks um, some of these new opportunities out is um, there's work involved. Innovation isn't free. Um, you know, teams that are, are trying to introduce these new approaches are already busy. They're already saturated. And the extra effort that's required for any of them to try to navigate with lawyers and others around something new, it's un it's really unfair. It becomes night jobs for them. And instead, you know, leaders and organizations have to properly resource teams to be able to make these things happen. Well, and I think you're getting at where where I'd love to go with this follow-up question, because you talked about the importance of having a business owner, but you've also just noted what are some of the difficulties in, you know, securing the 
support or sponsorship of that business owner, right? This is a, as you say, it's night work for them. So I'm curious, from all the organizations you've seen, what are some of the qualities of an organization that you think make it particularly adept at being able to secure the sponsorship of that business owner? In other words, are there cultural elements? Are there structural elements? Are there elements related to size? Or you know, what are, what are the things that stand out to you as saying, okay, that organization has a better chance of actually being able to make this scale than that one because... I think it's 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 this blend of it's absolutely culture. I completely fall back on culture and I have to say that col- answering culture means that I've got gray hair now because when <laughs> I was younger I was absolutely the guy saying culture be damned, we just need great tools and the people will follow. And as your yeah. as your hair gets more and more gray, you appreciate more and more that you can have the best new solutions available. But if your culture isn't tuned for people to be encouraged to take thoughtful risk, mm. it's it's just not going to work. But I, I I really believe that the winners here, it has to be bottom up and top down. You have to have that culture where teams are encouraged and supported to try those new things but they have to see it in their leaders. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard, right? Because leaders inside of these organizations today have to worry about tomorrow and and the day after that. And it's hard for them to worry about a year from now or five years from now. Um, You know, there's always different challenges that are coming out. But if, if our leaders today can't be these champions and advocates and set that signal for their own organizations, it's it's it becomes very frustrating for folks in the lines to constantly be the ones trying to drive the change. Um, fortunately, I think that we're seeing um, some new young leaders in some of these life sciences companies that are very, being very outspoken uh, champions for innovation and what's new, and hopefully that will send signals to some of the others that uh, that yeah. the water is fine and they should jump right in. <laughs> let me let me close with this question, and this kind of is circling us back. You mentioned that a lot of the work that you're doing today is with technology companies or uh, companies that are in startup mode or close to startup mode in terms of helping them to be able to scale the work that they do. How do organizations like that influence the you know the big companies that they're going to be selling pilots into to actually make the changes that they need to make in order to scale in other words how do i as an outsider impact you know the way that a pfizer or a gsk or a you know big company x is actually going to think about the building of this pilot into a scalable uh, business model it is it is uh it is a tough job um right now Pharmaceutical companies, life sciences companies, spend hundreds of millions of dollars each on this clinical research space. Mm. There is plenty of money that's being spent. The problem is the money isn't well distributed. Um, There are very familiar lanes in which all of those dollars are being spent today with very well-established electronic data capture companies and very well-established CROs 
and any entrepreneur, innovator, new capability is living downstream of them. Mm. And for the most part, they're collecting scraps of revenue downstream such that if they can hit a certain threshold, maybe it's $5 million a year, maybe they end up being an acquisition target for one of the incumbents and then they vanish. And, and this to me is one of our growth challenges in this sector. There are these very familiar lanes of how the money is being allocated that really limit our ability to help innovators and entrepreneurs to grow. Um, and it makes sense. The These companies today um, have very smart procurement organizations and sourcing organizations, which they need to have. Mm -hmm. And the incumbent vendors, like a lock and key, have figured out how to map to those elegantly with exactly the right resources and infrastructure to answer every one of their questions. But unfortunately, it really does lock out so many others that can bring new solutions in. One of the things we were working on during my time at Pfizer was how do we create that door that shows that we're open for business, that we're receptive and friendly for new, for new companies to come in? How can we develop pathways and processes for them to come in that we're not slamming them as if they were a multi-billion dollar right. CRO on their very first day? To be honest, Greg, this is also where I'm spending some of my time with a few investors right now on on incubating some new capabilities. And hopefully I'll have better answers for you in a couple of months and can come back and share more. We, I would absolutely love that, Craig. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. And I, along with our listeners, I know are going to be really eager to see uh, where you go uh, in this next phase. And so let's do, uh, let's do plan on getting back together in a few months and uh, hearing about how things are going. Awesome. Thanks so much. Absolutely. For our listeners, I'm going to have links to Craig's profile and some of the other key uh, initiatives that he's talked about here in the show notes. So definitely go and check those out. Make sure you follow Craig on Twitter. It's uh, at Craig Lipset. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.